0: Everyone, it's Maddie Riley for Public. I'm honored to be joined today by Julie Kelly, political commentator, journalist, and author of January 6th, How Democrats Used the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Julie covers the events and policy issues surrounding January 6th in-depth, and she writes about them on our new Substack page called Declassified with Julie Kelly. Julie, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. Well, I know you're super busy, so I'm going to go ahead and launch right into it. Um, You've been doing some of the most in-depth work on January 6th since that very day. Um, When and why did you start reporting on it?
1: You know, Maddie, I get that question a lot. Um, I'm not really sure how. I think initially my reaction to the events of January 6th were far different than most people. Um, I just didn't view it as this deadly, violent insurrection of Trump supporters trying to overthrow the government, just not how Trump supporters behave. Uh, Of course, there had been rallies throughout 2020. I mean, Donald Trump held rallies all the time. Nothing uh, turned even anything close to violent. So I just didn't have that same reaction. And I think, um, you know, in light of what we knew the government was capable of doing. um, I think I just was a little more suspicious as to, did this really happen organically? Or did somebody try to put all this together, at least put the pieces in place to make it happen? But then after that, seeing how the Department of Justice was handling January 6th defendants denying their release, denying bail, even to nonviolent offenders. I think that's what really caught my eye. So that's when I opened a PACER account, which is where you can get all the court documents. Because it was still COVID era in 2021, I I could call in and listen to the hearings. And Maddie, I was just shocked. I was stunned. I was sickened by what I was hearing these prosecutors say and what these judges were allowing. So uh, that's really how this whole nightmare began more than two and a half years ago. Oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. Especially, I hadn't
0: heard of PACER, so I'll remember yes. that one. Um, so, what have recent court documents revealed about the use of confidential human informants um, on January 6th? And what was the involvement of the FBI and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers? I know I just saw a tweet. You just tweeted about this. So I'm looking forward to hearing a little more. No, about this, this is
1: great. It's super timely. So thanks for bringing that up, Maddie. You know, the, one of the one of the most frequent questions I get is how many federal agents, assets, undercover police officers were involved in January 6th. And the bottom line is, Maddie, more than two and a half years later, despite the January 6th Select Committee, despite all of these investigations and trials, we still don't know. And this DOJ and judges have gone out of their way, particularly in the Proud Boys trial, which I covered, um, to concealing Not just the identity of confidential human sources, but the number of them. The government finally had to stipulate, which means admit, in the Proud Boys' seditious conspiracy trial earlier this year, that at least eight FBI informants were planted in the Proud Boys. We know that there was an FBI informant who was the driver for Enrique Tarrio, who was the the leader of the Proud Boys. So they were deeply involved in just that group. And to your point, I will have uh, a piece up on my Substack Declassified with Julie Kelly with new surveillance video showing the movements of one FBI informant who committed many crimes on January 6th, still is not charged, um, but it will continue to raise suspicions not just of FBI informants in those groups on January 6th, but some of the ones that we're hearing about more recently. um, I don't know if we'll ever get those answers. You know, Maddie, we just got news today from um, Representative Barry Loudermilk, who is the head of the House uh, Administrative Committee, that they can't find a whole archive of evidence collected and produced by the January 6th Select Committee, and that evidence speaks directly to the law enforcement and intelligence and security failures on January 6th. Now, isn't that convenient? Just when Republicans can really dig in and find out what the committee produced, what they didn't produce, who they didn't interview, like FBI Director Christopher Wray, for example, um, now all of a sudden this evidence has disappeared. So this is not going to sit well with the American people, especially as Donald Trump is now indicted for his alleged role in inciting January 6th.
0: Right, for sure. And and what about the Oath Keepers? Did they did CHS uh, Confidential Human Informants have similar roles within the the Oath
1: Keepers group? They did. Um, I believe the government stipulated at least okay. five F, uh, FBI informants in the Oath Keepers. Wow. The number two, uh, the uh, uh, I don't know what you would call him in the Oath Keepers, mm-hmm. not the leader. That was obviously Stuart Rhodes, but his number two guy uh, ended up being an FBI informant. So you have to wonder, and you know, Maddie, you and I have talked about this and hopefully we can get into this. This is exactly what happened in the Whitmer Fednapping hoax. They create these militias, so to speak, or existing groups that they embed and they expand and then they trap people into committing crimes so they can bolster this phony narrative about white supremacy and militia groups posing the most dangerous threat to the country. Um, so keep in mind, of course, this was all happening at the same time. The Whitmer Fednapping, uh, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers leading up to January of 2021. All this was happening in 2020, of course. Uh, so we still can't get any information out of the FBI. Christopher Ray will not answer any questions, um, but uh, these questions are not going to be going away.
0: Absolutely. And I definitely wanted to get into the uh, Whitmer Fednapping case. Um, But just to roll it back a bit, I mean, what do you think are the implications of confidential human uh, informant presence on January 6th? What do you really think happened that day? And can you explain a little bit about how, or maybe a scenario, maybe one that you talked about in your book about how, like what the roles of
1: CHSs were on January 6th? So we're still really finding out. But I think to um, add to the agitation of the crowd to provoke certain behaviors, um, you know, the most famous uncharted provocateur, of course, is Ray Epps. He has testified under oath Mm -hmm. that he's not an FBI informant or agent. That doesn't mean he didn't work for, you know, a dozen other government agencies or could have been a political asset of some sort. You know, Christopher Steele like Mm -hmm. character who isn't paid by, uh, you know, who's paid through all these different funneled uh, systems. So they can't really track it. So um, I think it was really to bolster the numbers. So the Proud Boys, I mean, think about this, Maddie. We were told dozens of Proud Boys were at Capitol Grounds on January 6th, but yet you have what, around 20 who have been charged. I mean, why if you had dozens mm-hmm. of Proud Boys, are so many of them in videos and photographs, you know, they had these orange hats on, very suspicious. None mm-hmm. of those individuals have been charged. So I think it was to make it look like this was a huge militia group descending on the Capitol. You know, you see these images, there's Joe Biggs and Ethan Nordeen and Zachary Reel. Um, you know, they're, they're in this line of people headed towards the Capitol from the Washington Monument. And I mean, those are very compelling images and videos that the American people have seen. And of course, the January 6th select committee aired during its hearings. Um, but when you have the overwhelming majority of that group who never were charged, even though they're on video, and I mean, you have to ask the question, well, how many were legit Proud Boy members and how many were feds or acting in some capacity mm-hmm. for the government? So um you know, we and also Maddie, it's not just FBI informants; it's it's undercover police officers. We know that there okay. were multiple undercover Metropolitan Police Department, DC, basically Metropolitan Police Department, uh, undercover agents on the Hill. They were acting like Trump supporters. They were dressed in street clothes. At one point, you can hear one on video saying, you know, stop the steal or USA. He's he's chanting along with the Trump supporters. Um, And so that's why also, Maddie, the government is forcing people, trying to force people into plea deals. They don't want these cases to go to trial because, for example, in the Proud Boys case, that's how we learned the existence of all these informants. So they really are trying to shut down that avenue of making this information public by really tormenting people into plea deals so the government doesn't have to produce all of this exculpatory evidence or discovery to defendants in these cases. Wow,
0: that's that makes so much sense. So it sounds like there, there could have been undercover informants just, you know, making the crowd mm-hmm. like look bigger, just standing there yelling things and also riling up the crowd um, to see how far they could get it. To go. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, how let's talk about how the FBI has used CHS entrapment in the past. Um, you wrote about the Whitmer fednapping case a lot. What did the FBI do in the Whitmer kidnapping case and why is the FBI using these tactics? Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Maddie, I think the Whitmer fednapping hoax is like a must read uh, account. Of what this FBI is capable of. Had I not covered the Whitmer Fednapping hoax at the same time I was starting to cover January 6th, I would not really suspect the FBI was capable of doing uh, what it what I suspect that it did on a much broader sense with other government agencies on January 6th, because what they did in Whitmer, and this goes back to Christopher Ray's. Um, claim in 2019 that domestic violent extremists, meaning Trump supporters, this was his code for Trump supporters, right-wing so-called white supremacists, etc., posed the greatest threat to to the country. Now, this sort of stemmed after Charlottesville. You know, that's how they really weaponized Charlottesville. I'm sure there were plenty of FBI plants in that too. I wish that was something I could get to, um, but this was uh, FBI. Uh, Director Christopher Ray's claim. So, in order to make a bold statement like that, you know, you have to kind of, you would think, back it up with data or incidents of that happening. Well, it wasn't happening naturally, so the FBI had to concoct it, and they, what they did in Whitmer, was stitch a group of men together uh, that were angry about lockdowns in Michigan, and then really. Uh, really angered after the 2020 BLM riots. So they used various FBI uh, informants to look on social media, formulate uh, or, or take this sort of existing online Wolverine Watchmen, they said militia group that they were going to be protesting certain things to, to target those men stitch them together, exploit them, such as the man like Adam Fox, who was a homeless man living in the basement of a dilapidated vacuum repair shop mm-hmm. in a strip mall in Grand Rapids, didn't even have a toilet or running water. He was supposed to be the mastermind. Well, of course, he oh wasn't. God. What happened was you had the key FBI informant, Dan Chapel, who po- portrayed himself as an Iraq war veteran who wanted to brush up on his firearm skills. And he was paid at least $60,000 for seven months work to entrap Adam Fox and several other men, organize every single event, drive them to these events, um, offer them money, get drunk with them, get stoned with them while they're recording these conversations later used as evidence. There are at least three undercover FBI agents. So you have undercover who are still FBI employees, and then you've got informants who are paid separately separately cash, believe it or not, paid separately for their involvement. So you had at least a dozen FBI uh, informants. You had at least three FBI undercover agents who acted as explosive experts. Um, And that is how they lured these men to their arrest site on October 7th of 2020, a month before the election, which then those arrests were then weaponized, politically weaponized. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris talked about it on the campaign trail, Gretchen Whitmer, who is the alleged target of these would-be kidnappers, gave her sob story on, you know, for weeks on cable news channels wherever she could get attention. So it was again to advance this phony narrative that Trump supporters, militiamen want to kidnap and kill the political foes of Donald
0: Trump. Is there any indication that Gretchen Whitmer knew about this
1: plot? She absolutely knew. She admitted that she knew. Uh, wow. She knew months beforehand. In fact, the FBI imp- during the trial said that they installed pole cameras outside of her cottage, which was the alleged scene of the crime. So she was well aware of that. Um How she knew, who communicated that to her, we don't know. A big question there is, was she told by a man named Stephen D'Antuano, hmm. who was the uh, special agent in charge of the Detroit FBI field office. So he was the one who would have who handled the key informant Dan Chapel. Uh, those three undercover agents worked for the Detroit FBI uh, field office. So was it Stephen D'Antuano who was telling Gretchen Whitmer and her lawyers what was in her staff, what was going on? We don't know because you know what happened, Maddie. A mm-hmm. week after the arrest were announced, Stephen D'Antuano magically got a promotion to head up the Washington FBI field office. And he was the guy on the ground collecting intelligence before January 6th. He was running the investigation and the events of that day and, of course, oversaw the entire criminal investigation into January 6th, the pipe bombers, et cetera, um, before he um, suddenly decided to retire a few weeks after Republicans won the House last year.
0: Wow. I feel like this is all so incestuous almost. so, do you know where yep. Dan Chapel is? What's he
1: doing? So, Dan Chapel did testify. There were two trials in 2022. In April of 2022, um, four men—so six men—had been charged with federal conspiracy to kidnap and use of a uh, weapon of mass destruction. Two of those young men pleaded guilty. So, we had four federal defendants go on trial in Grand Rapids. Uh, for this, what the government said is a major domestic terrorism case. Uh, After, let me see if I recall, almost four weeks of trial, um, the government did not get a single conviction. Two men were outright acquitted because these four defense attorneys did such a superb job explaining how the FBI had set up this entrapment operation for these men. Two men were outright acquitted two men, they were hung jury on Adam Fox and Mm -hmm. another man, Barry Croft Jr. Now this was stunning. This does not happen to the Department of Justice. That's how brazen this FBI entrapment operation was. They didn't get a single conviction. And unfortunately, Maddie, I think the hung jury was one juror in both Adam Fox and Barry Croft's case wanted to convict and the other 11 who of course had acquitted the other two men daniel harris and brandon concerta mm-hmm. so the government went back to trial retried them in august the judge who had really helped the government in the april trial went on steroids for the august trial realizing the political uh, necessity of a conviction and um, so a jury finally did convict them, and those men have been convicted and sentenced. I think Adam Fox has 18 years in prison. Barry Croft has 22 years in prison. Both of those are on appeal right now, and those appeal briefs should be filed uh, this month, actually. So that case is is far from over. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it, listening to that trial, and not just the information that we knew from the court filings, but what... Dan, say, Dan Chappell, who testified in both of those, had to say for himself. Um, so it, so we'll see how he comes out in, in any uh, appellate proceedings as well. Got it.
0: What are the biggest myths and co- misconceptions Democrats have about January 6th? Like, why do they call it – Why do they call it um,
1: – An insurrection. An insurrection, Yes. Well, because that was the word that I think was uh, one of the talking points that was set out either very early that day or earlier before January 6th. Because, Mandy, all of a sudden you had all these people referring to it as an insurrection. Like, well, if you want to call it a riot, fine. I call it a protest. It got out of hand. But to call it an insurrection, which is exactly what Joe Biden, when he gave his statement at 4 o'clock that afternoon, The protest was still going on. No one really knew what was happening except what we were seeing on uh, television. At 4 o'clock, he gives a speech calling it an insurrection. The media had already called it an insurrection. George W. Bush and Laura Bush, who we know Mm. hate Donald Trump probably more than anyone, sent out a statement at around 6 o'clock calling it an insurrection. So all of a sudden, you had this word that was so not applicable in this case even if you wanted to say it later, still didn't really know what was happening. So but it's stuck. And of course, that's the term that has been used by the media, by prosecutors, by federal judges, believe it or not, that this was an insurrection, that all these Trump supporters got together, that they were heavily armed, that they tried to kill police officers, that they went in the Capitol, they wanted to hang Mike Pence, they wanted to hang Nancy Pelosi, they were going to, you know, storm the Capitol, overthrow Congress and install Donald Trump, uh, you know, keep Donald Trump in office as president's crazy talk. Um, so That is why Democrats are so good at what they do. Uh, They put things like this together. They put the pieces in place. They collaborate behind the scenes. They come up with whatever the term is, right? Election collusion. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, quid pro quo impeachment phone call. And here, an insurrection. And the media compliant corporate media is of course only too happy to go along oddly no one's been charged or uh, charged Mm -hmm. with insurrection uh and you've got roughly two dozen people who are charged with seditious conspiracy but that's the closest you come out of 1100 people so far charged uh nothing close to insurrection
0: wow um you know in talking about the media why do you think the January 6th rioters have been so demonized by the media? I mean, there are how I forget how many rioters are in jail in um, like solitary confinement after all, after
1: this. Right. So what happened, what I was talking about when we first started chatting was the government DOJ, Joe Biden's DOJ, moving to deny release of these January 6th defendants, even those charged with nonviolent obstruction or conspiracy counts and the judges going along with that. So what happened early on was that the D.C. Bureau of Prisons opened up what I call the D.C. Gulag, which is a special section of the D.C. city jail reserved only for January 6th defendants, meaning Trump supporters. So it is a political prison in the heart of the nation's capital. Now, for over a year, that prison held men who had simply been charged or indicted. They had not been convicted. Trials didn't even begin until March of 2022. So Joe Biden's DOJ was doing one of two things, showing their muscle, right, flexing their muscle that we can do this, that the judges are allowing us to do it, even for nonviolent offenses, or two, tormenting these men into plea deals, which of course some of them did. So you had a man like Guy Ruffet, a man from Texas who was arrested in January of 2021. He was at the DC Gulag until his trial began in March of 2022, 14 months later. Wow. These men, some of these men, Manny, were in jail for almost two years as innocent men, two years in the case of the Proud Boys, uh, many of whom were arrested and charged in January, February, 2021. Jury selection in their case didn't begin until the end of December, 2022, and their trial started in January, 2023, two years. Innocent men repeatedly denied release in this case by Judge Tim Kelly. Who was appointed by Donald Trump? Unfortunately, um, so this was undoubtedly a, a political prison. It still is, and people who have been convicted and sentenced to overly harsh um, prison sentences that you can't compare to in any other case. I mean, men getting seventy-eight years in prison for spraying a police officer with pepper spray—that does you can't find a single. Criminal in Washington, D.C. If he punched a D.C. cop in the face and kicked him, he wouldn't get seven or eight years in prison. So, this is the sort of selective political prosecution and sentencing that's been happening. So, really, almost everyone who's either been charged or taken a plea deal and then sentenced in some capacity is a political prisoner because there are different rules that apply to January 6th protesters than would apply to anyone else, particularly, of course, as we all know. BLM and Antifa 2020 rioters. You reached
0: the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.